All right, if you have your Bibles, please open up to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. And if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that's going to be on page 984. Page 984 in the Bibles that we provided for you. I want to say a special thanks to everyone who was able to come to our surf team training last Sunday. Uh, We had a great turnout, and it's such a blessing to see more and more people uh, willing to serve and get involved on Sunday morning. So thanks to those people as well as those who came out yesterday to Haines Square on the east side of Medford and uh, helped out with uh, the fall festival table that we were able to host there and spread a little awareness in the community and, and, and speak of ways that we're seeking to serve our community. So just wanted to say thanks to everyone who's been involved there. Uh, now as we get into our uh, passage this morning, I want to kind of take you back to one of my uh, favorite experiences growing up, and it's still one of my favorite experiences today. All right, so, so just think about this. What happens when you take one pound of somewhat spicy sausage and you add a teaspoon of garlic powder a teaspoon of salt a teaspoon and a half of basil leaves and a teaspoon excuse me a tablespoon and a half of parsley one large can of tomatoes two six ounce cans of tomato paste three cans of water and a 15 ounce can of tomato sauce and let it simmer for about 120 minutes then Mix up two pounds small curd cottage cheese, two beaten eggs, two tablespoons of parsley, two teaspoons of salt, and two teaspoons of pepper, and then find a way to conglomerate that with a cup and a half of Parmesan cheese, two packages of mozzarella cheese slices, and six strips of a particular kind of noodle, and you layer that out properly, stick it in the oven, and about 45 minutes later, you have mama's lasagna, all right? I mean, this is, this was, you know, like, hopefully, if your childhood was anything like mine, like, birthdays were pretty special, and so it was like, what do you want me to make you for your birthday dinner? It was always mama's lasagna, all right? She got this recipe. We're not an Italian family, okay, a little more Scots-Irish in our family, but she got this recipe from an Italian woman who knew how to get business taken care of in the kitchen, you know what I'm saying? So, so this was mama's lasagna, and I have somewhat followed in her footsteps, um, at least a little bit. And many of you know that it was Marsha, my wife Marsha's birthday last weekend, and no great birthday for a great woman is complete without a great birthday cake, right? So I compiled my ingredients together. Uh, you can see them right here. And like every, like every world-renowned chef, I have my own special assistant. And... We worked up a magical birthday cake that looks something like this. (laughs) And from another angle, this. Now, my mom's brilliance in the kitchen, and if you'll allow me to be a little braggadocious, my own brilliance in the kitchen, excuse me, our own brilliance, Parker and my brilliance in the kitchen, what would happen if we took these famous recipes, all right? The lasagna recipe, my Pillsbury cake mix kind of easy recipe. And what would happen if we started adding ingredients to these recipes? Three tablespoons of hot sauce, 
a couple extra cups of ground red pepper, a few extra eggs in there, maybe a couple of cups of oil. I mean, what would happen? We would, that would be a recipe for ruining a nice meal, right? Well, what happens in our spiritual experience when we start adding ingredients to what God has laid out for us in Christ? It's not a way to ruin a meal. It's actually a way to ruin our lives. And this is what Paul is going to get at here in Colossians chapter 2. You see, there were these false teachers coming along and saying, hey, you need to take what you have in your experience with Christ, and you need to add an ingredient here, and another ingredient here, and another, another ingredient here. And Paul is not too thrilled about that. What Paul wants to do is he's going to hammer the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. And he's going to show these Colossians that Christ is supreme over all things, and that includes legalism. So the, 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 the main thought that I want us to walk away with this morning is this, is that because we have been filled in Christ, we can walk in freedom from legalism. Because we've been filled in Christ, we can walk in freedom from legalism. And this is what Paul's going to hammer here in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. And so if you would, I just want to read the first couple of verses to get us going here in the text. This is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. All right, so the first encouragement, the first instruction that I want us to grasp from Paul this morning, the encouragement would be to drop the shadows because Jesus is enough. Drop the shadows because Jesus is enough. You see that Paul begins in verse 16 by the, with the word, therefore. All right, so he is connecting what he's about to say with what he just said in the previous verses. And we can trek all the way back to Colossians 2 verse 8 and he's going to say see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ for in him all the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority you see these false teachers were proposing espousing this empty philosophy they were seeking to add to Christ. And what Paul's going to say is, look, you've already received fullness in Christ. You need to add nothing to him and his work in order to live a life that's acceptable and pleasing to God. It's, they were putting forth this alternative path toward spirituality. And, and what legalism is, is really, it's a Jesus plus theology. So Jesus is, is well and good, but we need something else. We need to add something. It's Jesus plus this to really attain a true spirituality before God. And this, of course, is a slap in the face to the deity and sufficiency of Christ. I mean, maybe you experienced this before. You know, she's really nice, but she doesn't have the look that we're looking for. He's a really nice guy, but he's not driven enough. 
they're a great company, but you know, they need to tighten up their marketing scheme. They need to be a little more concerned about the bottom line. I mean, we see this over and over and over again in our culture, and, and, and it can be somewhat offensive, right? Well, can you imagine what this is like to Jesus? He has no deficiency. He lacks nothing, whereas we often lack much. He lacks nothing. And these teachers were saying, hey, you need to add something to Christ. What, what is legalism? Legalism, C.J. Mahaney says, seeks to achieve forgiveness from God and justification before God through our obedience to God. So legalism is essentially performing our way to God's approval. It's performing our way to God's approval. The essence of legalism says Jesus is not enough. And so what Paul is going to do here in Colossians, he's going to say, look, you need to add nothing to the spiritual program of development because Jesus is enough. We, we find in verse 16 that they were concerned about diet and days, if you will. First off, uh, the, the false teachers were, were raising questions of food and drink. Uh, this is a way of, for them to say, look, uh, you're something then less of a mature believer. There's something deficient about your spirituality if you abstain, if you abstain from certain uh, food and drink. In fact, I'm, I'm sorry, I actually said that wrong. They were forbidding. It may have been actually a mixture of both, but they were, they were often for, forbidding certain food and drink and, and Paul's going to come along and say, look, in Christ, just as Jesus taught in Mark chapter 7, he's, made all, he's declared all food clean. And so we don't, don't have to succumb to these extra requirements forbidding certain food and drink because in Christ it's all taken care of. Everything is made clean. Everything that God has made is good when we, of course, engage in it rightly. And so, so don't you find this to be good news? right? We can go to Blue Ribbon Barbecue in Arlington or Regina's Pizza here in Medford or Legal Seafood somewhere in Boston, and we can enjoy and partake because all food and drink is clean in God's sight. There are no restrictions. There's nothing forbidden except for, of course, when we see prescriptions like don't be a glutton or don't be a drunkard, right? And so these legalists were, were seeking to add to Christ by forbidding what God allows, but then they were also adding to Christ by requiring what God does not require. And this is where it comes in at the end of verse 16, where it says that they were uh, raising questions in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. They, they were saying, look, you, you need to participate in these festivals still to really climb the spiritual heights. So you need to observe the Sabbath as if Jesus is in our Sabbath rest. You, you need to participate in these festivals as if Jesus isn't our true feast, as if, as if he isn't our true Passover lamb. And so they were uh, adding these regulations and verse 16 teaches us something about the way that legalists love to operate. You see, they love to place a higher standard on people to get them to be acceptable and pleasing to God. And so think about this. The legalists would come along and they would say, hey, let me see your spiritual checklist. 
I see you have Bible reading on there and prayer and yeah, you should share the gospel and what about this? And then they would take these, this checklist and they would say, oh, this is not quite enough. Let's add a box here. Don't listen to that kind of music. Let's add a box here. You shouldn't just pray. I mean, you should pray like 10 hours a day if you really want to be a super Christian, right? And so they would add to a person's spiritual checklist in order for them to, to kind of have a, a, a more proper, noble standing before God. And if we're being honest, right, we have this tendency ourselves. We kind of have our own spiritual checklist. And when we aren't performing in a way that we feel like honors God, then we feel less accepted by God, less loved by God. And here's the beautiful thing about the cross. See, legalism bypasses the cross and it makes the work of Christ on the cross less than sufficient. Why? Because we need to do something else for God to accept us. But the cross yells to us that Jesus has done everything for us to be loved and accepted by God. So we are no more loved and accepted when we are good little Christians. I mean, now listen, this doesn't negate the fact that we should live disciplined lives, right? And the first Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. I mean, it is good to pursue God in his word and to go to God in prayer. Why wouldn't we want to, to pursue God in prayer? Why wouldn't we want to gather with other believers to worship him? Why wouldn't we want to share the gospel? Why wouldn't we want to pursue holiness? I mean, the, the, the idea that we reject legalism doesn't just set us free to live any kind of life that we want to. We're to pursue delightful discipline, but we're to pursue it in such a way that it is not gaining us more acceptance or love from God. And this is what the legalists were after. And Paul is so adamant about this because he's saying, look, you don't have to, Cross your spiritual T's or dot your spiritual I's to be more accepted by God. Why? Because Jesus is the substance to which all of these shadows pointed to under the old covenant. So these, these regulations that they wanted to impose regarding food and drink, these, these days of, of observance, all of them have been fulfilled in Christ. This is what Paul says in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so what is a shadow? A shadow is something that points to the substance or the reality. And so the sacrificial system, all of the prophets, all of the priests, they were pointing forward to a true and better prophet, a true and better priest, a true and better king, a true and better sacrifice, a true and better Sabbath. Jesus is all of these things for us. He always spoke God's truth. He's a true and better, pro better prophet. He is the one and true mediator between God and man. He's a true and better priest. He's the perfect, benevolent, and perfectly just king. He is the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. It's in Christ, the substance, that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so Paul says, look, if, if you want to know Christ and live for Christ, you can drop all of these shadows. You don't have to keep performing your way 
to an acceptance before God. And the irony here, as Dick Lucas points out, the twisted irony about these false teachers is they were actually still living in the shadows, right? They were were living as if Christ had not come. And when we slip into a legalistic way of life, we are actually living the same way. As Sam Storm says, he says, if we have him, we don't need them. Jesus is enough. And so verses 16 and 17 encourage us to drop the shadows because Jesus is enough. Then in verse 18 and 19, we we find a second encouragement, and that is this, to drop the mysticism because Jesus is enough. Drop the mysticism because Jesus is enough. What are we talking about here? This is another set of legalistic prescriptions that the false teachers were leveling down to the Colossians. They were saying you need to pursue a spiritual experience before God if you really want to know God in a, in a deeper way. And so it's this pursuit of a subjective experience, a pursuit of an experience more than a pursuit of Christ. We see in verse 18 that he says, let no one disqualify you. In verse 16, it said, let no one pass judgment on you. And in verse 80, it said, see to it that no one takes you captive by a a hollow and empty philosophy. And so now he's saying, look, when these legalists come around and they take out their referee's whistle and they blow it because you haven't had the experience that they have, you're not pursuing God in the same ways that they're pursuing him, then you need not pay attention to what they are bringing to the table. And we, we see this in a few different ways. As, as he uh, says in verse 18, they insisted on a few things. Number one, asceticism. You say, what's that? It's, it's a practice of rigorous self-denial. We saw this in monastic communities uh, through the Middle Ages and even into the time of the Reformation. Even the, the great leader of the Reformation, Martin Luther, he was an Augustinian monk. And he would deny himself. I mean, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be enough for Luther to sleep on a comfortable bed. He would sleep on a cement floor because he wanted to deny himself the comforts of this world that he might be more pleasing to God. Monks would often go on these extreme fasts, not as a way to experience more of Christ and delight in him, but to be more approved by God. And so asceticism is, is, is setting up practices that, that deny the body in order that we might be more accepted. We, I mean, have you ever blown it before God and you think, man, I'm not gonna eat? And they say, we, we, we have this principle of fasting. Jesus says, when you fast, as fasting is a good spiritual discipline, but sometimes we take these spiritual disciplines and we practice them in order, as a way of getting back in God's good graces. And Paul says there's, there's no need for that. We don't earn our way back to God. We don't perform our way back to God's approval. We practice biblical repentance, and we follow hard after Christ. Uh, number two, it says in the text that they were, they were practicing the worship of angels. And, and what does this mean? Well, at minimum, they were invoking angels in their worship of God. They were, they were using angels as kind of an inter, intermediary uh, to approach God. At worst, they were actually worshiping the angels themselves. 
And Paul says, look, we worship no one but God. We have no mediator besides Christ. We lift up no person, no angel, no saint. We venerate no one besides the triune God. And so we don't need anyone else, anything else to have a true experience of God. And then number three says that they went on in detail about visions. In other words, they would have these spiritual experience and then they would go and and tell others about them how that they saw this or experienced that. And they're saying, well, what what about you? Did you go to that conference and, you know, experience, I mean, because God was there, or did, did you go to that church because you know, I mean, they really worship. They like, they like have a guitar and everything in their worship services. They don't always sing like old hymns. And well, I mean, we sing hymns, right? It's good. It's, it's, it's content over style. That's our philosophy of music here and worship. But, but people are chasing after a particular kind of experience. And Paul is saying, look, that adds nothing to the work of Christ. Now, it would be good to qualify that Christianity is not devoid of experience, right? I mean, think about our own conversion. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says that God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown his light into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I mean, that sounds like an experience, does it not? It even sounds a little mystical, right? That God has done this in our heart. He has caused us to be born again. He's opened our eyes that we might see Christ, see our need of Christ, see our sin for what it is, and draw near to God through Jesus. So Christianity is not devoid of experience, but it doesn't need to pursue these subjective, mystical experiences to really be a child of God. And so it might be good to ask you this morning, how are you experiencing God? Are you experiencing God on a daily basis? I mean, in your pursuit of him, do you sense his love and his presence? Are you living your life with joy because you know God? Do you have peace and confidence and purpose in your life? You see, we need to pursue God and we will experience God but then the question is how do we respond when we do experience God every experience of God is designed to humble us and the opposite is the case here in Colossians 2 we find at the end of verse 18 that Paul says that these false teachers they're puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nursing it together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And here is the root of the legalist problem here. They're puffed up like a balloon. They're inflated, and this hot air has carried them off from Jesus, who is the head over all. When we stay connected to him, it's when we are with him that we grow with a growth that is from God. But these false teachers were puffed up. And this teaches us another truth about legalists, and and that is that they look down on those who have not achieved their righteousness. They have a sense of superiority because others are not as righteous as they are. 
And there is this, te- this, this tendency to compare themselves with others. And we see this so clearly in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus tells this, this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And read along with me, if you will. Uh, in, in, in Luke 18, starting in verse 10, it says, Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the Pharisee looks down on others. They're puffed up. They have more of God. They think they have more of God. But those who are humble see their need before God, and they just say, God, be merciful to me. I need you. I have nothing to bring to the table. Tom Schreiner says that legalism has its origin in self-worship. If people are justified through their obedience to the law, then they merit praise and honor and glory. So as you think about your life and as you think about your pursuit of God, do you practice certain spiritual disciplines so that you can be seen by others, so that you can kind of merit God, put God in your debt. God, look at me. Or do you do it just because you love him? Jesus warned us about this type of glory seeking on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, look, if if you practice righteousness for the sake of being seen by others, you better enjoy their praise because that's all you're gonna receive. And so legalists are are pushing forward for this, this experience that they might be more approved by God. And, and Paul says, look, Jesus is enough. And then, then finally we see in verses 23 through 20, uh, excuse me, 20 through 23, that we should drop the man-made rules because Jesus is enough. What he, what he says here in verse 20, actually read this with me. He says, if you, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so Paul here draws their attention again to another set of legalistic prescriptions. He's saying, look, you, you died with Christ to the dictates of the law. So why are you going to submit to, again to these extra biblical rules, these man-made rules? And it's almost as if Paul has this mocking tone. He says in staccato fashion, do not 
taste, do not handle, do not touch. And he's trying to, to point out that we tend to focus on the externals in our, in our Christian life, right? We want to pursue God through mere behavior modification as if that was what God was after instead of examining our heart, instead of pursuing God from our heart and letting obedience flow from a heart that loves God and is given to God. See, the Pharisees were trying to add to what Christ had prescribed. This was passed on to these false teachers, and they say, do this, don't do that, so that you might be pleasing to God. And we, again, see this in our day, right? We experience this in our own Christian life. I mean, the, the means of grace, as we've talked about this morning, the, the means of grace, praying and, and reading our Bible and memorizing Scripture and attending worship. Do you ever engage in these disciplines, these practices, so that you might be more accepted by God? Or do you do them because you love God? C.J. Mahaney says this about the means of grace. We change what God intends as a means of experiencing grace into a means of earning grace. We, we change what God intends as a means of experiencing grace into a means of earning grace. This is the tendency of the legalistic heart. And, and, and then we, we, we see legalism in, in other ways, not in just our pursuit of God, but what about just our religious practices? The Sabbath. Uh, what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ, right? So now we worship God on the Lord's day, the day that he was raised, and it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. This is what Jesus teaches over and over and over again. So I can remember growing up and they're hearing others in the church say, don't do anything on Sunday besides go to church and stay home with your family and, and, and worship. I mean, yes, we are to rest. Yes, we are to worship God, but it's, we can lift a finger on Sunday, right? What about uh, our Sunday dress? I mean, is it okay to wear jeans in church? I mean, you can see today I kind of went semi-suave, all right? Didn't go the full, the full nine yards. I mean, I, I like wearing suits. It's okay. I could rock a suit every Sunday, but uh, do this, and we do this as leaders so that people feel comfortable coming to church just as they are. Why? Because God is more interested in the fabric of our hearts than he is the fabric of our clothing. But we have these legalism in the church today. We have legalistic teaching like you can only read a certain kind of Bible written by those under the authorization of a king. You ever heard that before? The King James version of the Bible. That's the inspired, I mean, the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew, right? The ESV and others are a fine translation of the Bible, very good translations. And, and then we have the, the question of cultural engagement. 
And this is really where kind of the rubber meets the road. And we want to address this as a church because even as we've just gone through our membership process and you're going to see that in our church covenant, how we want to live life together as a family of faith, we don't set up, we at least seek not to set up any extra biblical rules about what it looks like to live life as a Christian in the culture. All right, so you have kind of three major views. You have Christians against the culture. So anything in the world is bad, and we're going to reject it as much as possible, and we're going to come up with Christian systems for everything. So we are against the culture. Then you have Christians of the culture, which is not necessarily the best route either because it's just like we embrace everything in the culture. We're so free in Christ that there is nothing that we should uh, resist but we don't want to be Christians against the culture, nor Christians of the culture. We want to be Christians in the culture. We are in the world, not of the world. And so this is where we can tend to be legalistic, right? Don't watch that TV program. Don't go to a movie rated above such and such. Don't read the new DC comic book series that's a little more risque. Just saw a tweet about that yesterday what about alcohol some of you in the church I mean you're a teetotaler you've never had a sip of alcohol before and so that is just an issue that you feel like man that's how you honor God that's how you live your life for God you you want to stay away from that because you're maybe fearful of the danger of being enslaved by it or the appearance of 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 of, of evil and yet in the Bible we have a prohibition against drunkenness, right? But is there anything in the Bible about having a, a social drink, a glass of wine? And so, so what do we do about that? Like in the church, can we have a church that there may be some in the church who have a social drink and can do so in a wise way, in a God-glorifying way, and then others who totally abstain? And the answer is yes. We do so in love. We do so understanding that we're pursuing the same Christ and we're after the same principles of God's glory. And so I want to lay down just a few principles on Christian freedom and responsibility that we find out of the book of Colossians, I mean, excuse me, Corinthians, for the gray areas of life. And so if you, if, you, if you want, you can write these down. They're, I think they're very helpful. These are from verses where Paul is speaking to the idea of our actions. Number one, we should ask the question, will this action edify me? Paul, there's a quote in Corinth that said, all things are lawful for me, and Paul says, but not all things are beneficial. So in other words, all actions, all uh, ways that we would engage in the culture are not necessarily beneficial. They're not necessarily going to build us up. Number two, will this action enslave me? And so there are certain dangers in the culture that could potentially enslave us. There are certainly addictive substances out there that we need to make sure we're guarding ourselves against anything that would enslave us, anything that would cause us to become addicted. Number three, will this action encourage other believers? So this is where the principle that love needs to limit our freedom. Can you have a social drink? Absolutely. Would that be a stumbling block to some 
other Christians, perhaps. And so it's good if you have a social drink to do so wisely. Maybe that needs to happen in your own home. Maybe it needs to happen with a certain group of people. So our, our love should limit our liberty. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. He says, therefore, if it, listen to Paul's heart. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul was concerned about his brother and sister. He said, look, if me taking this sip or eating this meal or watching this program is going to make my brother or sister stumble for whom Christ died, then I am going to abstain from that. And so will this encourage other believers? Number four, will this action shed light on the gospel? We can read 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, he becomes all things to all men that he might win some. And that's not just a, you know, a license to go out and do whatever. He's saying that he uh, identified with people where they were, that he tried to get to know them where they were, that he might be able to share Christ with them. And he says something very similar in chapter 10. Uh, Number five, will this action emulate Jesus? Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So is this an action that we can see Jesus participating in? If so, then we should feel free in Christ to do so along uh, using these other principles, keeping them in mind. And then finally, a chief principle to live by, will this action glorify God? So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. That is a comprehensive principle to live our Christian life by. And it should keep us from placing extra biblical man-made rules on other believers. And at the same time, it should help us to live a life of holiness, a disciplined life that delights in pleasing God more than pleasing anyone else or even ourselves. And so back to Colossians chapter two, why does Paul level this critique against this legalistic teaching? Well, he, he says in verse uh, 22 that, that these, are all, uh, these all perish as they are used and they are according to human precepts and teaching. In other words, these are man-made rules. God needs no help in prescribing what our life should look like according to his will and ways. And so it's not surprising that Jesus gets heated when people are coming along and saying, hey, you need to do this, don't do that. What about this? Have you considered that? Read Matthew 23. He pronounces seven woes on the Pharisees and scribes. He says that you love to load up heavy burdens and place them on other shoulders, and yet you will not even lift your finger about these same burdens. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. He calls them whitewashed tombs. In other words, they look very good on the outside, and yet inside they are full of dead people's bones. Jesus had harsher words for Pharisees than he did prostitutes. Think about that. And so the danger here is that we can pretend to have it all together on the outside. We can do all of the little Christian things. And yet if God does not have our heart, then what Paul will tell us at the end, uh, in in verse 23, he says, look, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look really good. They look really wise. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
So if we practice our Christian life out of a sense of routine, out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of guilt, or out of a sense of whatever that you want to fill in the blank with that is detached from the finished work of Christ, what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus makes us accepted by God, that Jesus enables us to be loved by God and makes us reconciled and redeemed by God. If we are adding anything else to him, we have wandered down the path of legalism. And so to close, I just want to ask you this morning, in the recipe of your spiritual life, what are you adding to Christ? If you're not a believer in Christ this morning, maybe you're exploring Christianity, the default mode of the human heart, this is for unbelievers and believers, the default mode of our heart is to earn our way to God's approval. What can I do to look good enough in God's sight? so that he might accept me. As if we could pay back the debt that we owe to God. But our debt is incalculable. This is why we need Jesus to die on the cross and nail all of our sin, as verse 14 in chapter two, nail all of it to the cross so we might be completely forgiven and have complete salvation in him. So if you are not in Christ, if you've never decided to follow Christ with your life, please hear me this morning. You cannot add anything to the work of Christ. You just need to receive the work of Christ on the cross on your behalf. And now the crazy thing is the same is true for those of us who believe. We can add nothing to Christ's work. So we simply pursue God out of the knowledge and reality of what he has already done for us. This is how we live a life that's free from legalism. This is how we live a life that's pleasing to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we ask that you would help us to identify ways in our lives that we might seek to add to your work. Father, whatever that may be, whether we are still exploring what it means to follow you or if we have followed you for many, many years, Lord, let us not drift into a way of life, a way of living before you that would seek to add anything to your complete, finished, sufficient work. Father, let us be a church that honors you by the way that we live our lives to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.